Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast was recorded before we heard some interesting news about the James Bond ownership. Brendan, what did we find out this week about James Bond? Well, it slowly and then rapidly unraveled that Amazon were in talks to acquire MGM and that did actually finalise this week for $8.45 billion. So exciting times for the franchise. Mm, interesting news. We weren't expecting that, were we? No. That'll, that'll teach us for not talking about, only, only talking about things from the 60s. Yeah. So um, as, as I mentioned... We did know this when we recorded this episode, but expect us to be discussing it more in future podcasts. So, back on with the show. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films by learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, Email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. You are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast and it's another episode in the letter C. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm joined again by Brendan and Hello. Tom. Hello. It's another varied show. Uh, lots of different people to talk about from lo- lots of different fields within the James Bond universe. If you haven't listened before, we basically go through basically an encyclopedic dive into the world of the Bond films and we cover a bunch of different things in each episode. This episode we'll be talking about um, some uh, villains from Octopussy, uh, an, uh, an editor, a writer, a stunt driver, a film studio and then a character from the Roger Moore era. So it's quite an eclectic show this week. Exciting. C... <laughs> Exciting. C is for circus twins it's a bit of a random one because um actually a bit of a cheat uh because they're not called the circus twins they're called mishka and grishka um but there's no surname given so we're calling them the circus twins and they are a couple of henchmen from the film octopussy guys remember these very well yeah they wear the big fan yeah, they're in Octopussy Circus and they wear the, the maroon um, puffy shirts with the leather mm-hmm. waistcoats. Yeah. So it, they are played by real-life twins, David and Anthony Mayer. They're British actors. In the film, Kamal Khan and General Orlov uh, employ the pair as assassins and 
I don't know if you remember this film very well, but like the the start of the film, you see um, after the post credits, you see Agent 009, who is disguised as a circus clown, and he steals a fake Fabergé egg from Octopussy's Circus while it's in East Berlin. And then Mishka and Grishka give chase. It's actually really quite a chilling scene. I don't know if, because yeah, it's a bit because, weird. There's a few there's a few scenes. Is this the one where there's dogs chasing? Uh, possibly, yeah, scene. yeah, yeah. Because um, Agent 009 is dressed as a clown. Yeah. So it's quite it's it's got a weird like atmosphere to it, and you don't know that there's twins until the very last minute. He's being chased by one, and then the other one like appears right in front of him. Yeah. It's quite they're they're an interesting pair. Octopussy seems to be defined by ridiculously niche villains because I seem to remember uh, they're these guys. They're knife throwers, aren't they? Basically, yeah. So every every sort of death they cause is got to have something to do with throwing a knife, even if it's not the most efficient way to do it. I remember, there's another character in Octopussy who can only kill people by standing. I think it must be about two meters above them and dropping a like yo-yo saw on them. Yeah, which doesn't chainsaw, really work yeah. if you're you're stood on the same level as them. So it's quite they're quite limited villains. It's a it's a strange film for the the villains really. All of obviously he's, he's a very over the top villain. You got Kamal Khan who's very sort of measured. You got these two. It's yeah, it's a bit of a strange film. But yeah, the the circus twins as we're calling them. Um, so they kill Double uh, O Nine. Uh, like I said, throwing a knife into his back. And it's that uh, murder of 009 and the recovery of the fake Fabergé egg because he manages to deliver it to the British embassy. That's where the dogs come in and um, he falls through the window, I don't know if you remember, and it's it's quite a, quite a good good scene. Um, and that brings Bond into the story and he sort of starts investigating uh, Octopus, Octopussy's Circus from there. So yeah, but later on in the film, Bond kills Mishka, uh, while on the in the train sequence, he drops a circus cannon on his head. Um, seems to kill him instantly. And then later on, there's a bit of a chase on top of the on the train, um, and Bond and Grishka get thrown off the train. Grishka pins Bond to the wall with his throwing knives, and then Bond kicks the door open that he's pinned to. Grishka falls through, and then Bond throws a knife into his stomach. It's quite a grisly death, actually, for mm. for James Bond. According to reports, and I haven't been able to find much more information from this, but um, the origins of Mishka and Grishka came from an early script for The Spy Who Loved Me. I haven't been able to verify much more information beyond that, but um, that's that's where they came from. And there was also the original idea for them, had or, or, or Cubby's uh, concept for them. He'd actually seen some French... Uh, a French nightclub act who might have been knife throwers as well and he really wanted them to be in the script he really wanted them to be in the film um, they had like this big bouffant hair and hence why the characters ended up having bouffant hair but they decided they didn't want to be in the film because they didn't want to be murdered in the film for whatever reason mm-hmm. so anyway they had to find these actors to, to play them after these circus acts decided not to do it anyway so Tony and David Mayer, they're born in 1947 in Watford, so they're British. They made their film debut in Hamlet uh, in 1976. They describe it as a student film and they play two sides of Hamlet. It's quite an interesting concept, the light and the dark, a bit like Gollum, if you can imagine in um, Lord of the Rings. Also appearing in the film as Quentin Crisp, Helen Mirren 
and Vladak Shebel, who was Kronstein in uh, From Russia With Love. Mm-hmm. And actually, when they made that film, they were quite um, excited that they were in a film with a James Bond um, actor. But before that, they'd mainly done sort of fringe and, and rep theatre. So they're very much like thespians, um, yeah. uh, actors rather than film actors. Their first shared acting credit, from what I understand, came in a film called The Third Walker, which was a 1978 Canadian film. And that also starred William Shatner. And it's about a, a, a twins who get separated at birth and are raised by different families. And so that was their big sort of break. But um, as like there's a really good interview online with them um, with for Bond fans only. It's a fan site. And uh, they say they're talking about this film. They said nobody saw it, but it was a good experience for them. So like I said, Cubby had seen a nightclub act and wanted to hire them, but they didn't want to do it. And then um, they basically, this is according to Anthony and David, they said they looked at bouncers, taxi drivers, models, and then eventually actors uh, to play Mishka and Grishka. And they said the process was that we had to go in and put these wigs on, read for them and look villainous. And then they went on and did knife throwing exercises. But the wigs was quite funny for them because, well, it just doesn't add anything to the character and I would have assumed that it was their real hair. Um, That's the only reason why you'd have it. Well, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, so they're, they're in the film like not a great deal, but they make quite an impression, I think. There's the scene that I've already mentioned. There's a, a fight on top of a train and that was filmed at Neen Valley Railway. And David, who played the second twin, the one that didn't get murdered on um, by the cannon... He did a lot of the stunt work himself on top of the train and he called it one of the most exciting things he'd ever done. So Roger Moore and Kabir Bedi were uh, as Gabinda. They were fighting on top of the train and they needed to be able to show at least one face in close up on top of the train. But Roger Moore and Kabir Bedi didn't do it. So David ended up doing it, doing the close ups. So it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So talking about what it was like to work with Roger... David said he was delightful he was so relaxed that you relaxed and they also talked about Cubby as well obviously Cubby Broccoli the producer of the films he said Cubby was very nice too I had the temerity to say to Cubby with my scene where I tried to kill Roger Moore he said I read it and I couldn't see it was going to be any good and Cubby replied well you know a lot of the films don't look so good on paper so they didn't being in a Bond film didn't really have a huge impact on their careers. Um, it didn't catapult them to fame. He said they got a few adverts after it. They got um, a toothpaste commercial, a chewing gum commercial. But the thing that they really enjoyed um, after um, uh, after being in Bond was a thing, something called Peter Greenaway's The Draftsman's Contract. Peter Greenaway is quite an acclaimed director, but this was his feature debut and they got to star in that. And they they, they sort of consider that to be their pinnacle of their acting career. Um, David is, is much more of the active actor now um, and has got loads of credits to his name. He's been in Inspector Morse and The Bill. Um, and in most recent years, he was in the 2015 miniseries London Spy by Tom Rob Smith. I don't know if you saw that. No, yeah. had Ben Wishaw in it and Edward Holcroft, Jim Broadbent and, and David actually worked for many years in the at the Globe Theatre. He was very instrumental in getting that built in, in London. Actually, they're both really well known for being a very famous production in a very, very famous production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Peter Brooks is A Midsummer Night's Dream. And this is like if you read on anything about Midsummer Night's Dream, this is considered one of the um, iconic 
versions of it. So they're both in that. Tony also is still acting, but he's also been an art director. He's into painting and he's also done teaching as well. So, um, yeah, they're like not massively active on the Bond circuit, but they've done their done their stints. They've done reunions. They've done um, bits and bobs here and there. But yeah, they don't really see it as being a huge part of their lives being in Bond. But it's definitely something that they sort of come back to. Uh, they say it's more like it's like a high school reunion you just go back and it's like oh yeah. nice to see you and blah 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 mm. but yeah that's it the circus twins david and tony meyer but yeah i would recommend checking out this interview they did with for bond fans only it's um quite an enlightening they're quite a funny pair actually um that's it c is for clark jim clark so jim clark was a film editor uh, he was born in 1931 in Britain. He grew up in, this is one for you two, in Boston, Lincolnshire. Ooh. Yeah. And then he went on to study in Northamptonshire. So he's co- connecting all three of us there yeah, um, geographically. And he founded the Oundle Film Society in 1947 as well. I don't know if that's still going, but, you know, it's... Something you know, something that shows the intent that he's interested in film from an early age. Yeah. So uh, his most sort of recognised films will be Midnight Cowboy. Have you seen that? Oh yes. Yep. Yeah. So he was a creative consultant on that. So he sort of went and did a bit of rework on on it because it was unreleasable at the at the first the first cut, and so he went in and he completely recut it, added the song Everybody's Talking. Um, and uh, you know, turned it round basically. Marathon Man, so he edited Marathon Man as well. Killing Fields and Vera Drake, so they're what are considered his main body of work. Uh, he started his career on an Ealing com- comedy called The Titfield Thunderbolt. Either of you seen that? that? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. yeah. Mm. So that was in 1951, and then he graduated to assistant editor by the time that they'd finished shooting that. He's also dabbled in directing as well. Every Home Should Have One in 1970, Rent a Dick in 1972, and Madhouse in 1974. Now, the first two are those classic British, what's the best way to put them? Like, you know, like the um, sort of like carry on, I guess. Yeah. And then Madhouse is like a horror. And then he works with Michael Apted in 1979's Agatha. So. This is laying the groundwork for how he connects to the Bond world. Uh, he worked again with Michael Apted in 1994 on a film called Nell, which actually received three Golden Globe uh, Award nominations and an Academy Award nomination. I've not seen it, but... Jodie uh, Foster? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it? I Any seen good? It. No. No. I've seen clips of it. It's quite... It seems quite amusing. <laughs> oh, really? Because she plays a feral woman, right, who sort of... Mm. Anyway, it's easily spoofed. Yeah, we talked about it quite a bit when we, we, when did. we did the Upted one, we didn't did. we? <laughs> then in 1999, he is given the task of editing The World Is Not Enough, which was directed by Michael Apted. And he, he said, somehow I never thought I'd end up editing, editing a James Bond movie. I realised how far they had come since the days of Connery. Very polished, high-gloss techno yarns. The thought of attaching myself to such a venture was slightly awesome, not being accustomed to editing action movies, but therein lay the fun. So, as we we've slightly we sort of discussed the direction on the world is not enough, 
but also I guess that goes with the editing as well it's at times the pace is sort of reined in a bit and it's it's not as action driven so I guess that's uh that's lends well to his style of editing nice bit of serendipity um the following film he edited was actually called kiss kiss bang bang which of course is the term for uh, in the 1960s that referred to bond uh specifically during thunderball so i just that was that was nice you know that his next one was also bond related in in theme and then his last significant works were vera drake which i mentioned earlier in 2004 and um happy go lucky in 2008 was his very last piece of work oh mike uh, lee mike lee yeah well it's very enjoyable uh, great film yeah and he said looking back over many years the american cinema of the 40s was very important to me along with hitchcock films and early british comedies music has always played a major role it influences the rhythm of my editing the pacing of a film and its dialogue have a lot to do with the music and the act of going from one shot to another has always fascinated me. When and how you do it, the reason for an edit. So, yeah, he was very passionate about what he did. And I guess it's good that he had a David Arnold soundtrack to sort of uh, influence his rhythm as well. That's a so, real yeah, that's, long career that he had. A- absolutely. Yeah, that's... Um, from when, was 50, the, when was the Tipfield Thunderbolt? Was that, 1951. Wow. To 2008. Over 50 years. He must have seen some real changes over the years. Mm. He mentioned, didn't he, with the... He didn't realise how much James Bond had moved on in, in 35 years. So, yeah. There we go. That's Jim Clark. Must be quite hard to edit because um, it's not like writing, is it? The changes in technology make editing a very different task throughout the years. I think I think the the process is very um, the the way that the digital editors work is very modelled on the old fashioned mm. cut and splice of of the old days. I think if you look at like someone like Thelma Shoemaker, she's been editing for Martin yes. Scorsese for years and years, and it's one of those jobs that can you can just you're, it's a journeyman job, isn't it? You can just do it forever. I suppose if there's yeah. any career that you will develop as the technology develops it's probably editing isn't it because you'll just pick them things up as they come along like little little slight changes and you'll learn how to do that because it'll make yeah. things quicker and it's not a physically demanding role either um yeah. obviously it's a mentally demanding role but it's not one that you're lugging cameras around on set or yeah. having to expend all your energy on set you can just sit in a dark room it's probably a great job for an old person isn't it <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 cup of tea when you like Jim Clark. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jim Clark. <clears throat> and all due, all due uh, respect is due. Um, yeah, well done. <laughs> C is for Clement. Dick Clement. So Dick Clement is a writer who... He's not got a big part to play in the Bond film series, but uh, he his role is as an uncredited writer on Never Say Never Again. And that's it, really. So his his dad uh, um, work with Bond is just working on that film. But he has got a really interesting history uh, in the industry uh, that goes on for quite a long time. So I'm going to I'll go into a bit of depth of, of who he is and, and what he's done in his career. And then we'll I'll do, talk a little bit about Never Say Never Again, although there's not a lot of information about um, what he's done on the film. So he was born in 1937. He's an English writer um, and he's 
associated quite heavily with another writer called Ian Lafrenais, who is, uh, as a a duo, they worked on loads and loads of different series and films over the years. Um, And their kind of peak period was uh, in the mid-1960s onwards, where they... They wrote a lot of stuff for um, TV series like The Likely Lads, Whatever Happened to The Likely Lads, Porridge, Lovejoy, Alvida Zen Pet. Um, and they'd also, they've also worked on a few films as well, but um, not not too many. And the earlier ones I didn't, I've never really heard of. So uh, The Jokers, uh, Otley and Hannibal Brooks. They're the early films they've done. I've not heard of any of those. So uh, Dick Clement's early career, he, he kind of started working with the BBC as a studio manager started getting involved in writing scripts and comedy sketches um, and became involved in a few various series. Uh, one of them uh, was called Not Only But Also, which was Peter Cook and Dudley Moore series. Um, he's done various other things as well. He did a rockumentary called To Russia With Elton. But really, the, the career is defined by these um, kind of TV sitcom series that they did uh, to the point where they actually went over to California to work on a series called On the Rocks, which is the US version of Porridge, which I didn't know about whilst I was mm. whilst I was reading this. They also worked on a film called Prisoner of Zendar, which was which starred uh, Peter Sellers. So yeah, they went over there and it wasn't very successful. On the Rocks, as you probably imagine, you, you I might, have you seen it? Did you know it existed? No, no, no. Um, I mentioned it to one of our friends uh, to to Stubbs earlier, Butler, and he was like, "Oh, don't talk to me about that." So he's b- big fan of porridge, not not so keen on the, on the rocks. They also did a film which you might have heard of called Vice Versa, which is a brilliant film um, with uh, Judge Reinhold and uh, F- uh, Fred Savage. Is it Fred Savage or is it the other Savage? Is it a body swap thing? Yeah, it's him and his yeah. son. And uh, they swap. It's basically the same concept as every other body swap film that came around in the seventies and eighties. Um, but they, but he wrote that. They worked on a load of American shows as well. So uh, Tracy uh, um, takes on, uh, which is a, a Tracy Emin comedy show, which ran for four years. Um, and they also have uncredited roles, uh, writing roles on The Rock, uh, which obviously has a link to Bond, uh, Pearl Harbor. And they did a television ad- adaptation for Rob, Rob Harris's Archangel, uh, which starred Daniel Craig for BBC One. Hmm. thought that was interesting. They were both awarded uh, an OBE uh, in 2007 honours list as well. So, well done, guys. Uh, <laughs> now, when it comes to... Uh, when it comes to Bond, as I said, there's not really a, a lot of information about what they did on Never Say Never Again. I tried to find some interviews and things that where they talk about it, and there's a little bit of information about it. But the interesting thing that I found out was that Tom Mankiewicz, uh, Connery wanted Tom Mankiewicz to, to polish the screenplay for Never Say Never Again, but he declined um, because obviously he's, you know, he's got his links with uh, Cubby um, and didn't want to work on this kind of alternative Bond world. Um, probably didn't want to annoy could be so Connery got uh, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenais to get involved instead and apparently that was quite common there was a lot of uh, uncredited writers that worked on Never Say Never Again always seems to be the way with these secondary Bond films that aren't really in canon that they get a lot of script writers in to kind of fix them up uh, apparently Francis Ford Coppola was associated with Never Say Never Again at some point I don't know if he's actually any of what he did was 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 in the finished version but he was one of the under um, un- un- uncredited writers on there Interesting bit of information about 
the work that Clement did on Never Say Never Again, uh, he used some scenes from Porridge in Never Say Never Again. So there's a scene in which in Porridge where Fletcher is undergoing a medical examination um, and somebody asks him to fill a flask and uh, then he says, what, from here? Uh, and then that scene is recycled in Never Say Never Again with uh, Connery doing it, although apparently not as well as uh, as Fletcher in, in Porridge. Uh, there's also another scene where um, uh, Bond and Felix are... They're, they're, I, can't, I, I couldn't remember this scene. I tried to find it on YouTube, and I don't think it really exists, and I, I didn't want to watch the film to find it. But they, uh, there's a scene where there's a getaway, and um, Felix and, and Connery... They strip uh, off. Sorry? They strip off and escape on the bike. Yes, they play a boxer and a trainer escaping, yeah. which is a copy of um, Porridge as well. So oh these little God. bits that come How from How interesting. Yeah. Uh uh, there's a book which I'd never heard of. I don't know if you've heard of this called Battle for Bond, the Genesis of Cinema's yes. Greatest Hero. Yeah. Looks like a great book, but it's the only thing I could find that had any sort of information about Dick Clement and what he'd said about the, the Bond films. Um, and, and in it, he talks a little bit about Never Say Never Again and how it was a really difficult film to work on. Um, and he, he says that they, they had these kind of terrible rows in the evenings after shooting about, about the, the day. Quite a long quote, but it's the last thing I've got on Dick Clement, so enjoy at the end of each day there was a huge debate about what was going wrong and my writing partner Ian Lafrenade and I would sit in on those meetings until they started to get ugly and then we would get up and say we'll just go and make the dinner reservations so we would go and get a bottle of red wine start drinking it and wait to see who turned up and it tended to be Sean he'd come in and say bloody Mickey Mouse outfit and grumble at us he found it very unprofessional so there you go Dick Clement I think they were, he would. It was Connery who brought them in. I think. Yes. I yeah. think he was obviously very keen to work with them, um, and wasn't happy with the way that it was going, as you can tell. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But interesting that they recycled some porridge stuff. That's really funny. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I'm assuming that Sean Connery, because Connery would have known those series really well, being British, he would have. He, he, that's probably why he got them in. So he maybe wanted that sort of British humour. Um, to come in on it which is probably a staple of a lot of the more films as well so at that point in time probably something that he wanted but um yeah definitely i never i never knew that there, there was there, there were those scenes that um that, that, that replicated porridge in it but yeah definitely interesting to know dick clement c is for collins ben collins Ben Collins, uh, born 1975, um, is he's a racing driver from Bristol uh, in England, and he has driven cars in four James Bond films, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time to Die. Famously uh, was also The Stig on Top Gear from 2003 to 2010, and since then he's become very well known for preci- what they call precision driving in... Um, in films other blockbusters he's driven in include the dark knight rises solo a star wars story jack ryan mission impossible and actually quite recently he had an acting role in ford uh ford v ferrari the le mans 66 oh. film um, which mm. i think is a great movie the james mangold movie he, he played the role of denny hume and uh, also did um stunt driving in there so let's just talk a bit about ben uh before we jump into bond so he was born in bristol spent the first 10 years of his life in california because his father worked there 
and that he, he, he talks about his first v first time behind a wheel he said i started at age four i guess is my first vehicular experience on a very small john deere tractor which i crashed into chicken fencing because i just couldn't drive my legs weren't long enough to reach the brake pedals he went to school and then went to study law at the university of exeter and then he joined the british army and spent some time as a, a driving instructor for the special forces and then he started his racing career in 1994 his racing career is huge and we I could go on about it for hours but like there's just too much to talk about so let's just say he had a very very good racing career he did uh, formula Vauxhall junior he did formula 3 indy lights formula 3 tested m1 f1 cars he did all sorts of stuff so basically i've got no idea what the difference is between those <laughs> well they're just different types of racing aren't they he's done le mans he's done like basically every type of of racing there was but he said getting into stunt driving, he said, was a painful experience. In 2007, I was racing in Romania in a qualifying session and I took pole position. I broke all my ribs when I got hit into the barrier by a guy behind me. He said the car was a write-off. I had to get peeled out um, and it was probably half a million pounds worth of kit, this car. He said I was out of racing for a few months, but I could still do the precision driving and it was, uh, and obviously he'd, he'd already been doing that on Top Gear, but he said that it was just a, a happy coincidence that I called up, got called up to do a Nicolas Cage movie, and it just went from there. So that Nicolas Cage movie was National Treasure. Um, Great film. Yeah. I mean, do, do you know the story about him being the Stig on Top Gear? I don't, don't even know, know if I need to go into that. No, I've, no. I've, I, I don't know anything about it. Well, there was another Stig before him who wore the black suit, and then when right. he... He he basically got outed to the press, and so they had to get rid of him and bring one in in a white suit. And I think that was Ben Collins. And then Ben Collins was writing his autobiography um, while he was on Top Gear, and details of it were part of some sort of lawsuit. And so then that got leaked to the press that he was the new Stig, and then he basically got fired from Top Gear. Um, what? So and- the whole point of Stig is that you you don't know who he is. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, sorry, if you haven't watched Top Gear, the idea of the Stig is he's their trained racing driver, but he's completely anonymous. The idea was, I I believe, because the first guy that did it wasn't very good on camera and wasn't very confident talking. He was a great racing driver, but not very good on camera. So they just said, we'll just make him anonymous. And then it just became a thing. And I think the term the Stig is a a public school thing uh, because Jeremy Clarkson obviously is, you know... I don't know. It's something. It's something to do with posh schools, basically. It's yeah, the person cool. that you get that gets bullied in posh schools, right? But anyway. why? Does, why does he need to be anonymous? That's what I don't understand. Well, I don't know. I guess they just kept it up as a ruse, and now right, it's just okay. become a part of the show, hasn't it? People um, love it. I I never. I, I remember at uni, people had posters of the stick, and I was like, it's not even a person. It's just an outfit. It's Ben Collins. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now I know. I would have got one myself. <laughs> so. He, he he then be, took went left racing driving became precision driver which is what they do in you know when they need someone to drive really um, specifically for a film. So he was a precision driver in two thousand and eight Quantum of Solace and Collins actually drove James Bond's Aston Martin DBS as a stunt double for Daniel Craig. So you, there's pictures of him and he's got his hair bl- blonde and he's got Daniel Craig's suit on. So he's talking about. Um, 
the film. They were assembling a team of experts for what was billed as the biggest opening sequence in Bond film history with a visceral car chase followed by a bloody rooftop pursuit. The locations, vehicles and stunt crew were handpicked to guarantee action and the driving driving needed to put audiences on the edge of their seats, which is where I came in. My first call every morning was at 5.45am with the costume and makeup department for 45 minutes of hair bashing and metamorphosing. I climbed into a Tom Ford suit that was customised for Daniel Craig, put on the Ocean Seamaster watch and I remember thinking I had a lot to live up to. Awaiting us on the set were no fewer than 12 Aston Martin DBS for Bond worth $240,000 a piece as well as six Alfa Romeos and a fleet of nondescript background cards. He says... Yeah, basically that was it then. I mean, that, that opening sequence of Quantum of Solace is fantastic. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's definitely the highlight of that film. It's brutal. It's action-packed. Mm-hmm. He said I know we turn up after that. Yeah. He <laughs> um, he said that when they were he was watching them beating up the cars to make them camera ready, because obviously it gets really smashed up that car. He said he had mm-hmm. to look away because he couldn't watch them hammering this Aston Martin. <laughs> he said it, was just, it just felt too, too sacrilegious. But this is quite interesting. Talking about that scene, he said that it was heavily, heavily edited down. He said it was heavily edited down, but it, and it was the most brutal and realistic car chase I've ever done. It makes my hair stand up on the back of my neck because I remember what it was like to make it. So the scene is only three and a half minutes long, but actually it was supposed to be much longer and actually took three months to film. Wow. Collins said it was originally 20 minutes long. It really had legs and that's the way it goes. Editing is brutal. I would love to watch the full length version. So that's interesting that Quantum yeah. of Solace, a film we talked about last week being edited. And it turns yeah. out that that might have been a, a much different opening sequence. Yeah, that's, there's, um, there's got when we get around to doing Quantum of Solace, there's a lot to talk about with that film, isn't there? What, what I find interesting with that is that all of the stuff around Quantum of Solace is that we're talking about the writer strikes, but it sounds like there's lots of other issues involved as well that aren't even associated with writers. No. I guess it all starts with the written word, doesn't it? So if it's not in place, yeah. then... I would have thought that they would have lent more on... They would have put a lot more stuff in that wasn't written Yeah, and, uh, to, to pad it out, but it sounds like... But maybe it just felt it went on for too long. Um, mm. But yeah, that's a film that's that's like the shortest James Bond film. So to think that they cut it down is is quite yeah. uh, quite interesting. Yeah. So Collins returned to work as a stunt driver on Skyfall and Spectre. Skyfall obviously opens with the chase scene in Istanbul in Turkey. They were doing a lot of fight uh, driving between streets, and it meant that they couldn't. Tr- so often with filming they would put the car on a trailer and tow the car and then the the, the actors can sit in the car and look like they're driving but that because the streets were so narrow they couldn't tr- tow the car so that they, they developed this thing called the pod system i don't know if you've seen that but basically it's a stunt vehicle and it's got a one-man roll cage wed- welded to the roof so then Collins sits on top of the car and drives the car while the actor sits inside the car and pretends to wow. drive so it looks like they're driving, but actually it's someone sat on the roof of the car driving. Yeah. It's quite amazing. Um, and so I think he did the driving for Naomi Harris in that scene. So yeah, uh, down below the actor can sit inside the car. I imagine that's terrifying, being sat in a car and having a race car, race car driver driving it and then you not having control over it. Roger Absolutely wouldn't have been awful. up for that. No. <laughs> Roger would have green screened it, definitely. I'm, I'm bad enough just being a normal passenger. That's just, yeah. no, not for me. <laughs> Yeah, Ben says the pod thing is what we use to make things as real as possible. And then he also drove the DB5, the iconic DB5 in Skyfall. 
He, he called it hallowed ground. He said the first one I drove, it had Bond's old radar system, uh, you know, from Goldfinger. It had the gear stick with the flick switch for the ejector seat. He says it's a fabulous car. It's a beautiful drive, really smooth and equally powerful. That's interesting. Obviously, we did a whole episode on Aston Martin and um, we talked about the DB5. Um, but interesting that that was fully gadgeted up, that one that he got to drive. So, yeah. He said he didn't take it easy on the car, though. He said he just drove it the way it was supposed to be driven. So that was Sky 4. There's not much information about what he did in Spectre. Obviously, Spectre's got that great chase sequence in Rome, the one that I saw being filmed. I didn't see Ben Collins on set then. I think he had, Daniel's got a different stunt driver then. Now, I can't remember what his name is. But yeah, I don't think he doubles for Daniel anymore. But yeah, talking about Daniel Craig and if he's the best Bond, Ben Collins said, I think he genuinely is. I think he's a fantastic Bond. My other favourite was Roger Moore. Completely different for different reasons. I love the comedy element. A favourite movie of mine was A View to a Kill, which had that awesome awesome intro with the snowboarding. Sounds Um, like they need to get him on. Yeah. Oh, no. It was back in the days when they used to love a bit of humour with the Beach Boys song and when you've got that mad car chase through Paris where the car gets split in half. So, I mean... That's what that's what we're saying. That, that there's a time and a place for Bond films, and if you were in that era, that was the that's what you wanted. That's why they made them like that. Yeah, true. So he's going to be behind the wheel again uh, for No Time to Die. Don't again, not sure what his involvement is because he doesn't double for Daniel anymore. But I think he's prob- there's a lot of chases in that film. I'm sure. Yeah, he's actually just published a new book called Aston Martin Made in Britain. So I think that's one to to look out for if you're interested in that in those cars and that world. I think it's got the DB5 on the front cover. But yeah, that's um, Ben Collins. C is for Columbia Pictures. So Columbia Pictures, you will have heard of them, I imagine, if you've seen a film. Uh... Yeah, I've heard of them. (laughs) I think I've seen one of their films. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they're a film studio, production company, uh, distribution company, uh, and they're part of Sony entertainment the sony pictures group i'm gonna do a brief a brief rattle through of uh highlights of their history i'm not gonna yeah, go don't feel you need step. to bring out the board report i'm not <laughs> <laughs> um so if it was founded in 1918 uh it was originally called cone brandt cone film sales uh by two brothers jack and harry cone and uh joe brandt and they released their first fi- f- uh, feature film August 1922, so nearly 100 years ago. They adopted Columbia Pictures in 1924. It's derived from the national sort of personification of the United States, which is Columbia, and that is also used as the logo, which is based on the Statue of Liberty. That's another thing that's iconic. When that comes on screen, you know it's a Columbia. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to skip forward to the 60s. They actually turned down uh, Cubby Broccoli's offer with Eon to to produce and distribute the, the films. Instead, going later on to to uh, make Casino Royale, which we uh, oh, which we covered. We've drawn a line at this. No, film. I'm sorry, it's cropped. <laughs> it's cropped up again. So if you remember, we did mention in that episode they were struggling financially at that at that point and. Um, were throwing all their eggs in in a basket regarding this with a budget of six million dollars to begin with which then spiraled out of control to 12 million dollars which uh please see the casino royale episode for for why it spiraled out of control 
So, yeah, they, they then sort of made a bit of a comeback. I think that was by taking on the TV part of their their production company, which sort of kept them afloat and got them back. And in 1982, they were actually bought by Coca-Cola. So that's pretty interesting. I didn't know Coca-Cola owned a production company, no. but yeah. But then it, it, it uh, they, they sold it to Sony in 1989, so... It doesn't seem like they were that interested. But interestingly, in 1986, David Putnam, a guy called David Putnam, became head of Columbus Studios for only for a year. It didn't go very well because he was too sort of inward thinking. He, the projects he wanted to do, he wanted to go really small scale, uh, low budget. So it didn't work. But he hired Jim Clark to be his vice president at Columbia Pictures. Please see Jim Clark earlier in this episode. Um, <laughs> just, to, to, <laughs> just remember. Um, and because he, he valued his overall movie sense, um, just and beyond his editing, he just he had a feel for film. So he brought him on board. And, and Jim did say, people do come to me for advice on scripts and looking at cuts and seeing films and advising and commenting. So um, it, that was another short stint. Um, so less than a year. But... It's you know another another link, and then in the nineties, if you're sick of uh, hearing of Casino Royale, I'm sick of hearing Kevin McClory's name. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, Columbia announced plans to create a rival James Bond franchise because they owned the rights of Casino Royale. So they plan to make a a third version of Thunderball with Kevin McClory, but this this led, and we will cover this. I'm sure in greater detail, but this again, how many episodes are we going to do on McClory? <laughs> I think most episodes. <laughs> um, so then, uh, they they sued Sony Pictures, MGM, and Dan Jack um, in 1997, and I think we have mentioned this legal dispute that sort of the rights were then settled for 10 million dollars and the Spider-Man rights. Do you remember we talked about that? Yeah, Casino Royale. Bits. I don't think we've gone into detail with it. Yeah, yeah. but we we'll get to, when we get to Spider Man, we'll cover that. So yeah, they they then got uh, Spider Man, which is something else that sort of uh, fragments another franchise. So in two thousand and six, they finished first place in in terms of uh, uh, their takings with one point seven billion dollars, and that was down to the success of films Da Vinci Code, Pursuit of Happiness, Open Season. And Casino Royale. So Casino Royale was the first of a, a four-film contract for them to co-distribute the, the series. So all of the Daniel Craig films prior to No Time to Die, they're all distributed by Columbia. In 2012, Sony announced that Columbia had passed $4 billion worldwide. Uh, and that was down to Spider-Man... 21 Jump Street, Men in Black 3. 21 Jump Street? 21 Jump Street, no, was... yeah, huge. Hotel Transylvania and, uh, and of course, Skyfall. So, you know, Bond, re- more recently, I mean, I bet they feel like fools giving it up in the 60s, not going for it, not taking it on. But uh, the last four have been absolutely huge for them financially. And now, obviously, with No Time to Die, it, it got put out to tender again just a one film contract so it'll be universal that will be distributing that but um mm. yeah that's that's columbia's 
parts of play. So they've they've sort of always been there, present in the background. You know, such a messy. The Bond series is such a messy ownership, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's worse ones out there. There are much worse ones. Out there. <laughs> the Terminator one is an absolute joke. That's had so many distributors and companies behind it, but. Yeah, I mean Columbia. I guess that the thing, the thing they they brought him into the the twenty first century, right? The films mm. they they very much have a very specific marketing style, yeah, um, and a, 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 a way of doing things, which for those first those four Daniel Craig films before No Time to Die did gangbusters for the series, I guess. Mm. So um, yeah. can't can't overlook their their impact on the series. Uh, Universal have been dealt a bum hand. I bet they thought they were quids in when they landed the. Absolutely. No time to die, but yeah, 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 and where it will land next, who knows? Yeah, mm. maybe MGM Columbia will come back. Who knows? Place your bets. Yeah. yeah. C is for Colombo, Milos Colombo. So uh, Milos Colombo, he is the. Well, he, he plays a baddie in For Your Eyes Only, but he also, by the end, plays a goodie as well. He's he's um, part of a big twist in that in that script. He plays a Greek smuggler who is a rival of Aris Christastos, who is, as you remember, the actual baddie in For Your Eyes Only. Um, and interestingly, he's based on a character called Enrico Colombo uh, from uh, Risico, which I didn't know before researching this. That's a Bond um, short story. Bond short yeah. story. Which book's Risico in? I can't remember. Is it an octopusy? I can't remember. I think it might be octopusy. Yeah. Um, so the, but that's not all. He was also apparently named after um, a, a man called Giacchino Colombo, who was a Ferrari engine designer um, who worked on the Ferrari One Two Five, which uh, Fleming was a big fan of. Of course, Fleming being quite keen on cars. Um, the the role that he plays in For Your Eyes Only, there's. As you remember from the film, Christassos kind of befriends Bond early on and he talks about uh, this this smuggler, Colombo, and basically makes Bond think that he's the baddie and he's the one doing drug smuggling and, and the he's the protagonist or the enemy of the, the film. Later on, uh, he actually meets, he's saved by Colombo and his men and um, when he speaks to him, he finds out that Colombo is actually uh, an ally and um, he, although he smuggles in gold, diamonds, cigarettes, and uh, pistachio nuts, he doesn't s- smuggle heroin. Uh, and throughout the the, the film, uh, you can see Colombo. He's constantly eating pistachio nuts. That's his thing. Mm. Um, and every in my research, that crops up a lot. A lot. I don't know why. It's not. It's just a strange little pointless thing. So yeah, uh, that's his. That's his role in it. He uh, later he plays quite a big part in the role. He's he's almost like a kind of, what's the name of the, the detective guy in uh, Daniel Craig ones, French guy, Mathis. Mathis. So he plays a kind of similar role as Mathis, I think, in that he's he help, He's an ally of Bond throughout the series, and he plays a big part in actually what happens towards the end of it. But throughout the film, there's question marks about him. Towards the, they they do a raid on Christastos's uh, opium processing warehouse in Albania, and they take control of it. And there's a big fight with Locke, good henchman. And then eventually they they together him and uh, Bond they climb up to Christastos' uh, mountain retreat, um, and eventually they kill Christastos. So yeah, he's um, 
quite a, a big role. He's quite an interesting character because he's quite fun. He's quite jovial. He's slightly menacing. He's quite a well-rounded character and uh, he's definitely one of the best parts of that film. He, he's quite an important part of that. Um, apparently, he was cast following a suggestion by uh, Dana, who, as we know, is heavily involved with a lot of the casting throughout the Bond series. Wait, have you said, have um, you said his name yet? What, the actor? Yeah. No, I don't think I have, no. So uh, he's played by uh, Chain uh, Topol, who is actually just mainly known as Topol the world over. Most people probably don't even know his first name. And I didn't I'll know explain his first name. why that is in a minute. Uh, so yeah, let me talk a little bit about Chain Topol and his career and, and what he's done. Uh, he was born in 1935 in Tel Aviv. He's an Israeli actor, singer, comedian. Uh, he does voice work. He's just film producing he's an author he's an illustrator does a lot of stuff big big deal in the israeli world and and um the world over basically he's uh he's best known for his role in fiddler on the roof have you, either of you seen fiddler on the roof no i haven't either he plays uh Te- tevi the dairyman in that and it's i mean it's the role that's defined his career that he's basically people don't he's just associated with that role because he's not only played it in one place he's played it in films he's played it in various different countries all this stuff which i'll tell you about in a minute but he played the role in more than 3500 he played the role more than 3500 times in shows and revivals from the 60s until 2009 wow his life is basically playing this role um he began his acting career uh, in israeli army services and he toured with the theatre company um, back in those days. He was co-founder of a, a theatre co- company called Hafer Theatre. I'm going to talk a lot about films here or briefly mention films that you'll probably not have heard of because I haven't. A lot of them are Israeli films, but apparently they're quite big. His breakthrough, breakthrough film role came in 1964 uh, in, uh, in a, as a title character in a film called uh, Salah Shabati, in, in which he won a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer. And he went on to appear in more than 30 films in Israel and the United States, including Galileo and Flash Gordon. Ah, yes. It's one of the few films that he's been in that I know quite a lot about. He was described as Israel's only internationally recognised entertainer from the 1960s through to the 80s. So nobody, there's no other famous people that came from there in that, in that period or so it was said. Uh, he's won lots of awards over his time. He's seen as being quite a, an impressive actor. He's In 2015, he was awarded the Israel Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Fiddler in the Roof. So he first played the role of Fiddler in, in Fiddler in the Roof in 1966 in the Israeli production of it. So uh, Fiddler in the Roof, I think, started in 1964 and it kind of moved around different countries and, you know, how it does in, with, with stage shows. And... Yeah, 1964, and he was called on to audition for the role in uh, the London, um, uh, Her Majesty's Theatre in London, even though he wasn't fluent, fluid, fluent in English. So what he basically did was he memorised the score from listening to the Broadway cast version and just practised the lyrics um, without knowing the language. So when he when he auditioned, he was auditioning from memory and not from the fact that he actually understood what the words meant. He was also he was he was around thirty years old when he auditioned for his original role uh, when he went to to audition for this, uh, but the but the the character he was playing is like in his fifties or sixties. So one of the main impressive things that he's done by playing this role is that he manages to really well pull off an old man, even though he's only thirty something. And he he explains this and says uh, a good actor can play an old man, a sad face, a happy man, 
makeup is not an obstacle. Um, and yeah, he, he he kind of that's that's one of the main reasons he he's famous for this role because he was a young man playing playing an old old character. So uh, yeah, so the reason he's known as Topol and not Chain Topol is because, and I'm not pronouncing Chain correctly. People couldn't pronounce Chaim. There's actually a way to pronounce Chaim. I think it's the C-H at the start. It actually has an Israeli way of pronouncing it, which I'm not even going to attempt here. So the English producers just started calling him Topol, and it stuck. So everyone just knows him as Topol now. I think in, uh, he's, he's even referenced in Notting Hill. Not a particularly big reference, but uh, they do talk about Topol and not Chain Topol. He was... His, his role in Fiddler on the Roof, in the film version, I think, he was uh, chosen over Danny Kaye, Rod Steiger, Danny Thomas, Walter Matthau, Richard Burton and Frank Sinatra, who all expressed interest in the part. So it's pretty impressive that he got that over all of these massive, big, global acts when he's this uh, Israeli, Israeli actor. He uh, used a technique of locking his muscles, it says, to convincingly play an old character. And he said at the time, as a young man, I had to make sure that I didn't break the illusion for the audience. You have to tame yourself. I'm now someone who is supposed to be 50, 60 years old. I cannot jump. I cannot suddenly be young. You produce a certain sound in your voice that is not young. So pretty big method acting there. Obviously did a good job with it. I could go on for hours about all the stuff that he did on Fiddler in the Roof. Can we talk about James Bond? Well, there's not a lot really to do with James Bond. Um, yeah, so he basically uh, he's done loads of he's done loads of other stuff as well. He's got his uh, he's he's got musical credits, so he's done albums and things like that. He's he's a singer. Topol uh, with Roger Webb in his orchestra. Topol sings Israeli freedom songs, war songs by Topol. Lots of different stuff. He's he's an author. He's also an illustrator. He's done twenty five. He's illustrated twenty approximately twenty five books in Hebrew and English is interesting and he's also worked on loads of different charity projects in terms of bond there's barely anything i can find about him on bond aside from getting his biography but he's not done any interviews really about every interview he does if you look up you look up topol he's just talking about fiddler in the roof it's all he cares about <laughs> it's all anyone interviews him about if you read any interview of him like about his life they mention as well as being in bond then it just goes into this kind of fiddler in the roof stuff, and it's all generally ab- ab- about that. So I don't really have a lot of information on on any interesting anecdotes around Bond or anything like that. And Roger but, never um, said anything about him. What? Roger never said anything about him. No, well, I, I, it's not. There's not a lot about him that isn't. It's essentially just the guy in Fiddler in the Roof. Yeah, I imagine. Was, I imagine even Roger just would talk about Fiddler on the Roof if he was to talk about him. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> He'd probably have an anecdote about Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he's quite a good character in Fioris only. He's definitely one of the most memorable characters in that film. But, yeah, Jame Topple. Well, that's uh, yeah, a weird way to end the podcast, but um, thank you, as always, for listening. We have a huge, huge special coming up next. Uh, who wants to talk about it? It's... Well... I imagine BJ's not that bothered with this because he's had his Brosnan Phil. Is it Brosnan again? Are we doing it again? (laughs) Has he got a middle name we don't know about? It's it's Piers Brosnan, here we go again. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's Mr. Sean Connery. uh, Sorry, Sir Sean Connery, whose real name is Tommy. Did you know that, Wheatley? I did not know that. Big Tam. His name's Uh, not even Sean. His name's not even Sean. Oh, what a scam. 
but he still comes under C for Connery. So uh, we'll yeah. do him. We'll do him next. I imagine it'll be another epic episode, probably a two-parter. But if you do, I'm, want... I'm not sure what we're going to get from this. I think I think with Connery, it's a bit of a tricky one because we we know him as Bond, and you kind of know a lot of stuff that's in the news. But every time I find stuff out about Connery, it's quite interesting because it's stuff that you didn't know. He's a lot of his life's been quite hidden. Mm. And, he's um, a very private man yeah yeah, yeah. and it, never written a never written an autobiography yeah very much kept himself to himself and had a very like clear idea of keeping his private life private which is um you know very dignified and um but you know he was the first james bond so he's probably one of the most important people we'll get to do an episode on so i'm i'm really i'm really psyched and um i guess if, if any of our listeners want to chip in any thoughts on Sir Sean, then uh, how can they email us? Email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk or you can hit us on the social channels Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at jamesbond8z. Yeah, and thanks to everyone who has been messaging us on, on social. It's been really good to get your, your feedback and your, your messages. Um, I'm, I'm glad you've been listening. If you can also leave us a review on the podcast service that you are listening to us right now uh, tell all your friends tell your enemies James Bond A to Z will return thanks for listening ciao the James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley the podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly